John Crombie is the proprietor of Kickshaw's Press. Indeed. I and Sheila Bourne are. She's the illustrator, the artist, the graphic artist. And um, we started it together because she is the daughter of a uh, jobbing printer in Philadelphia and sort of had helped her daddy to compose text when she was a sub-teenager. And so we thought we'd try our chance because we'd done one or two children's books together, which got published in, uh, by Dennis Dobson in London. And then, alas, Dennis died, and so we thought we'd strike out on our own and try the ropes. So we began in a very small way, and about 40 years later, here we are with 160-plus books and not knowing what to do with them or how to get rid of them. Well, hopefully we can help you do that. Hopefully. Welcome to the Bibliophile. So why printing for you? Why printing? Because um, there's no particular because. Because we were doing things together in which Sheila, as a graphic artist, was making her contribution and I had made my occasional attempt to write a story or a novel and we thought we could combine them and do some children's books. And we did a couple of children's books, or two or three. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was with Dobson, That's Dobson, say. who did one, and he signed up for the others. And then we saw that it was not going to go far, because, alas, he died when he was coming back from the Frankfurt Book Fair, I think toting the rather heavy maquette that Sheila had done from our latest book. Mm. And, uh, alas, that put an end to our potential career as children's books producers published by a real publisher. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So we thought we'd try and go it on our own. What year was that, roughly? 1979, yes. Okay. What were you doing before that? In the way of books? Just just with your life? Well, in order to make books, you have to make money elsewhere in order to finance the books. And I was a translator at UNESCO, and Sheila did odd work at UNESCO in Paris. That's where we, you met, in that's Paris. That's where we met. Not, not at UNESCO, I'm glad to say, because UNESCO is not the most romantic spot to, 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 to meet. But um, it, it had the advantage that the UNESCO had a permanent staff, but also relied heavily on, on temporary staff when conferences and such came up and they needed extra staff. And that gave us the opportunity to make enough money to survive and to buy the necessary material and to have time to make books. Mm-hmm. So we went on from there. So nothing, nothing in your childhood, then? There's no family member that was in the printing business? or uh... Apart from Sheila's dad, no. no okay. Not in mine. But something must have appealed to you about it. Uh, well, the, uh, the very idea of, of being or thinking you are more or less in charge of the complete process of making books is attractive. You don't look ahead to the final stage of making books, which is to dispose of them, i.e. sell them, and that's where the, uh, where the going gets a bit rough. But um, no, I mean, the, the actual... The, the learning process, learning how to set type and then learning how to 
work these extraordinary machines and um, do everything you shouldn't do if you had been a trained printer, but discover things that uh, trained printers wouldn't have thought of or risked doing because they, those things would have gone against regular practice, regular professional practice. Um, so you were you were self-taught then? Yes. And that mistaught. Mistaught. Okay. <laughs> yes, but it I allows mean, you to even because you don't even know the rules, you don't even know you're breaking the rules. Yes, one did. One did subsequently buy um, a rule book. I mean, a, you know, a printer's guide to printing. But before that, uh, you know, exhibiting the odd professional printer might come round and say, <laughs> well, I've never thought of doing that, or I wonder why you thought of it. <laughs> um, so we did have some comeback, mm -hmm. and also a fair amount of enthusiastic comeback, because printers are so strictly rule-bound that they, uh, at first, don't approve too much when they see that their rule, <coughs> rules are being broken, but then see, yes, uh, that does yield uh, odd, interesting results. Can you give an example of breaking the rules? Well, just breaking the rules of, <coughs> excuse me, of normal typography to start off with, but then experimenting with the materials, with I mean, the colours, for example. We've, we've thought of ways of using colours um, to drip colours onto the the inking disc and cause the inking disc to um, mingle the colours so as to give an impression that each copy is distinct, which in fact it is because uh, different different drippings exactly, and the yeah. drippings uh, meld into one another and create. As you will see if you look around a bit, they create strange images in their own right. That's, that's the sort of thing we did, or using bits of string to um, tell a story by moulding string, essentially elastic string, on, on the uh, support, the, the block of wood. Things like that, anything that one came across. We used to use for backgrounds, graphic backgrounds, um, decorative wallpapers, embossed wallpapers, where they being embossed, the pattern that came out from the embossing could be used in the, on a normal uh, treadle press, a typographic press using the normal techniques, and you you get um, an e an e a very easy way to create multicolored decorated backgrounds, organic backgrounds of all shapes and sizes depending on the on the availability of the wallpaper that you found in the um, in the shop selling wallpaper. Okay. <laughs> Little suspecting they were selling their wallpaper to potential uses typographical material or words to that effect. Mm -hmm. Other than UNESCO, what what brought you to Paris? Oh. Not UNESCO. Not UNESCO. Not UNESCO. UNESCO proved a, a lifesaver in the sense that uh, much of my time, much of my short time before, was spent teaching English, which I'm not very good at and don't much enjoy. But I quite like translating. 
Well, not really. I, UNESCO text, I must admit. But once, once you found a, you know, a solid basis and a source of financing, and realized that one could have quite a lot of time off, thanks to the pay to do one's own thing and print, we, I won't say we never looked back. We looked back several times and said, "What the hell are we doing doing mm. this little book?" <laughs> but uh, 40 years ago, <coughs> excuse me, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, we seemed to be in a community that did this sort of printing and bookmaking with enthusiasm and got an enthusiastic public. Mm. Mm. And I must admit that recently the enthusiastic public has uh, tended to vanish. Yeah. Okay, so we're in France. Still not 100% sure why you went there, but... Uh, well, I studied, I studied studied French and German at in university. Yeah. And I wanted to... I, I had a, a fondness for Paris from having visited it. Yeah. And I thought this is the sort of bohemian life that the would-be bohemian that I then was <laughs> might <Okay>. enjoy. <laughs> now we're getting to the truth. Great. But um, it didn't prove as easy in practical terms, you know, just getting a job. You have to get a job to survive. Yeah, yeah. So I fell back on teaching English, which is not the most exhilarating way of making your life, making your living. So um, you started making books. What was the first book you made, do you remember? It, for kickshaws. The first books that Sheila and I made... Um, for publishers was, um, well, it was a children's book, and the second yeah. and the third, they were all children's books with Sheila's graphics being exploited. Yeah. And me coming up with an idea now and then and writing the text. But then, as I say, um, it, it fell through. Well, the, our, our potential career fell through because, alas, Dennis died and his wife decided to... She was, she was part of the partnership... But um, she um, bought a castle in Durham, an abandoned castle in Durham, and set herself up there, thinking to continue publishing, but she gave it up. So we lost touch, and we were in Paris, so we set off on our own. Okay. So what was the first book you did for Kickshaws? The first book for Kickshaws was actually not for... The first book we did... We hadn't then invented the name, not invented, but hit upon the name of Kickshaws. Shall I show it to you? Yeah, please. Yeah. yeah. If I can track it down, I think sure. I can. This is an, essentially a display of um, Sheila's drawings when she was very much under the influence of an American. Do you know Edward Gorey? Yes. Well, you will see there's some affinity with her work, with his work and between hers and his. And we did that, we printed that, that was the first book we printed. In three editions, we were ambitious in those days, we did 200 copies in English, 200 copies in French, and... This one's 150 exemplars. 150, I'm sorry. Uh, 1979, Hanky Panky, by the Fantod Press. Yes. Well, the Fantod Press explains the connection with Edward Gorey because the Fantard, this strange creature that he often shows in some of his books, is, um, i.e., his, his typical creature, 
Uh, it struck us as a strange word. It could do nicely for the title of our press. But then it happened that in London, once trying to uh, show the book and tout it to likely likely bookshops and also likely galleries, we happened upon a gallery that happened to be showing Edward Gorey's work at that time. And the gallery owner uh, liked the book but very sensibly suggested that we shouldn't continue to use a name associated with Edward Gorey because he might take offence. <laughs> so mm. we quickly thought of another title, uh, name to our press, and that was that was the Kickshaws Press. And what's the uh, provenance of that name? Well, it, we thought, I thought that it being derived from a French word, Kickshaws, which was Raymond Conneau, the French author, he had uh, transmogrified it into Kekshoz, as it would be, as it is pronounced more colloquially, and then had become in Shakespearean English Kekshoz. So we thought that it would um, go down easily on the French side as on the English side, but in, on neither side has it gone, particularly, gone down particularly easily. But it's intrigued, so it serves one purpose. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you look behind you, the, the, one of one of the exhibitions you have, we have, um, is kickshaws. Uh, kickshaws, meaning kickshaws is something. So, then, uh, then what? How you? I assume you you got better and better at uh, printing. You, you hope we do it. No, I could see that you did. Well, Sheila, Sheila, rested herself from. Gory's influence on her and became more herself as a, as a graphic artist and uh, I had the idea that we would produce a collection of French humorists uh, little known to the English-speaking public um, in short, short story form. Sheila could do the illustrations, I could do the translations, so each could contribute their particular discipline mm -hmm. and that's what we did for a couple of books one of them short stories by Alphonse Allais and another by Vidier de Lilladon but they were difficult to sell especially mm. as we I mean we were fairly ambitious we did uh, for us ambitious in producing um, print runs of 500 copies that sort of thing and you do need a network of distributors to get rid of 500 copies which is what we hadn't thought we would need <laughs> so, what did you think? You thought you'd just take them around to bookstores in yes, Paris? Yes, exactly. We did that in London, and it was a rather in London, of course, because they're English, right? Yes. Yeah. It was a, strictly no interest to any French bookseller, which is totally comprehensible. It weren't except for the drawings. I could show you some. Of, I think there's is there one there? They, this chappy here. I, yes, that is. Like Mother and yes, Other Tales. Alphonse Allais, yes. a favourite author of mine. Why is that? Why? Why is he a favourite? Well, he's one of them, but one of the first French authors I began to relish uh, because of his sense of humour. He's a great, great humorous writer. Okay. Thought, thought so by all French uh, literary chaps who enjoy humour. That must have been fun to translate then. It was fun. I mean, you had to choose the right stories that didn't depend upon cannonball puns or that proved to be untranslatable in English. That's that's the least well. That's the least copiously illustrated of 
Sheila's them style. So they all had similar covers and similar, they're same, same size. Yes, exactly. So the series then. They're going to be a collection of books like that. But right. we abandoned that after, after the first two. No, I can't find any of the other ones here. I've got one here called The Erring Sister. Yeah, that's the one. Oh, no, yes. Let's see. The first one she did, which has more illustrations of hers. Right. So that didn't work so well then. You got uh, stuck with a, a whole bunch of them, did you? Yeah. So then what did you do? This is going to take more than an hour and a half. <laughs> no, I'm not going to go through 160. Well, what did we do after that? Yeah, what, okay, what, what did you do that you think was uh, what, significant? What, what, was, what was something you did that was successful early on? Yes. The big change in our career, I think, came soon after when um, <clears throat> I'd always been a fan of Raymond Gounod, who was in the same line of humorous or semi-humorous writing. And I think it was about the same year, that the year that we decided to abandon the collection of French humorous writers and translation, that, that they, Gallimard, who is his publisher, <clears throat> republished one of his more famous works, which was some milliards de poem, a hundred thousand billion poems, which was an extraordinary construction of ten sonnets with the same rhyme scheme that could be recombined to that number of poems if, if the individual lines were physically slit so that the reader could, could uh, put a knitting needle between the sheets and get an entirely different poem by doing so. And that's naturally caught my imagination and I thought, would it be possible to translate this ex extraordinarily complex work into, into English? And I had a go and then went on having goes and about three months later I had something presentable and um, finally we got Gallimard's permission to do it in a limited edition and it was rather successful. Not necessarily in France, because they didn't like seeing their, one of their major authors being translated by an upstart English, small English press. But in, in the UK, it was well received by one or two uh, literary reviewers, and we made contacts with two booksellers in London and out of London, where our they? sort of books were being promoted. Mm -hmm. That one was Bertram Rota in London, the mm. famous Bertram Rota, three generational bookseller, and the other was. Oh God, I'm having a. Not a problem. Outside of London somewhere. Yeah. I'm sorry, this is terrible. Great friend, I've got a whole lot of correspondence from her. A young American girl in Hampstead who had a marvelous. Uh, bookshop yeah. devoted exclusively to handmade books and such books. God, I, I'll go and ask Sheila if she can remember. Yeah. It came back to me without even going as far as asking. No, good. <laughs> just getting up and walking. Yes. Maybe I should just stand up. It was Charlene Gary of the Basilisk Press. Does that mean... Basilisk? Basilisk. Yeah. 
That just rings a bell. Yeah. She, she didn't last many years because, alas, she was not too well in her latter year, last years. She wasn't young. She wasn't old either. But she ran a bookstore and her own press? Yes. Okay. In, in Hampstead? Yes. Yeah. And, and between the two of them, they, they gave us a sense that we were launched or about to be launched. And there was considerable enthusiasm, which, of course gave us the necessary enthusiasm to go on and to do more things in the same ilk, as it were. So we did another book by uh, Raymond Cano, which is called in French, Un Conte à votre façon, and which in English is yours for the telling. And Sheila did the illustrations for that, and it was another of Cano's cunning concepts to turn linear accounts of stories, of novels, into multi-choice ones. And this was a story about three little peas, and you move from one spot in the text to another according to the choices offered you. It was the first of the um, tell-it-yourself sort of books. Yeah, yeah. Tell your own story. Uh, really Who am I thinking of? There's a B.S. Johnson? Yes, B.S. Johnson was... Uh, they, they, he did one like that. He did one not, not, not half as interesting, but he was onto the concept of multi-choice writing, which, of course, with the Internet, well, not with the Internet, but with computers, has become a big thing, hypertext. But with this... Oh, I can show you that one, too. Sure, let's have a look. Sorry, that's all in... Because uh, they sold well and they are no longer available. That's the French, and I'll show you the English too. The last of their ilk, but, but you'll get the idea of um, the reader is presented with a, with a situation and a choice of where to proceed next. And he had written it as a two-page story, I mean a story in his own fashion, and we turned it into each, each line and each choice directing you to a different page rather than a different line on the page. Yeah, you've got seven, seven, eight, eight, nine, nines on, on each side of the, the pagination. You just choose one of them and it takes you to different different pages. And that was, I mean, if you look up Wikipedia under the, under the name of Kuno and that title, Wikipedia, for what it knows, really, well, it says uh, this was the origin of the incredibly popular, at least for several years, um, collections of books, um, tell-it-your-way sort of books, mm -hmm. where you're confronted by a situation. And, I mean, now it's part of the uh, whole the whole collection of... I, I don't watch them myself, but where you're on a computer, you're following a story and you're confronted by a situation and you're presented with a choice of which way next. There's a name for that, which has again escaped me. So this was published in 1980, you published it in 1982. Yeah. And so what happened with these? They sold out and then you kept reprinting them? Is that what happened? It didn't. They were sent off by Gadimar to their contacts in the US and none of them wanted to take them up. And in the UK, for example, the great John Calder rejected it because he claimed that it would cost him too much money. That one, but especially the 100 million million poems, it would cost the production costs would be too expensive, and he couldn't he couldn't afford it, despite having fairly substantial grants from the Arts Council and so on. I mean, I did a lot of applying to publishers 
in my own right, but Gallimard was behind me, mm -hmm. but nobody took it up. They were being, they were published in 500 copy print runs, so that was pretty good for us anyway. So most of them have sold then? Yes, yeah. they sold well. Okay. I mean, thanks to Conor's name, but also I think to some extent thanks to our... Man, it's a beautiful uh, production. It's production uh, of them. Okay, so that put you on the map a bit, I guess. Indeed. Um, in a very small way. You continuing to work at UNESCO at this point, or off and on? Yeah. Okay. I mean, when they needed me, I hoped uh, they would call me because it would be when I needed them, and it yeah. did often coincide, but not always. That's good. Okay, so let's look at uh, the next highlight. Then you you continued to make books, and your philosophy was such that what you wanted to do was to experiment, right? Y yes. That's what added extra enthusiasm to doing anything. Because I, I don't think any of the books that we have done, except perhaps these four-leafed combinational books, are in any way identical mm -hmm. to one another. That's the one thing that really strikes me, is when I'm looking at your oeuvre, yeah, none of them look anywhere near like each other. Mm. Okay, let's well, go with an example, of a good example of, of a, a big experiment that you did that you were happy with. Well, the book I showed you across the way there, where um, staying in this, my sister's cottage one summer in Scotland, came across an example of this um, needlework. Samplers are they, they're called. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, I still have it, or something comparable to it is out there. I could show you the original. But it gave me the idea of turning this into a book by telling the story of each of the different items used to um, decorate the sampler and uh, extract a life story from it, which after a bit of uh, brain-twisting, I did. And Sheila did some terrific illustrations for it and that was quite popular. I must admit nothing has been quite as popular as Raymond Cono and company. But from then on it was a question of hitting upon interesting out-of-the-way provocations, stimulus, stimuli that would um, set us off on a different book. There have been different techniques and different resources, different materials used like, as I've mentioned, combining inks in different ways, using as backgrounds or even as foregrounds wallpapers that had different designs and seeing what sort of a story could be extracted from them. Basically using the, the chance resources, the chance um, means of printing that, had nothing, that were not intended to be used for printing purposes, but seeing how they could be twisted and turned and, ex and something extra extrapolated from them. And that's basically what most of our books are about. We went on doing children's books, that's a fairly standard children's book, which initially we were going to do for Dobson, but didn't. Uh, so we've done a fair number of fairly, fairly conventional books, but the ones we feel happiest about are, are the ones that are, as it were, extrapolated from nothing or from nothing that was relevant to printing or mm -hmm. to storytelling. You, you take a look at the material and then you try and develop a story from the, the actual physical material, is that right? That's right, yes, yes. 
as, as one I showed you, looking for new material, we went up to the Quartier in Paris where sales, street, street sales, straight out of the barrow sales of different tissues, accessories, and just wondering what, how they could be exploited to, to, to get a story out of them. And I bought, bought bagfuls of this sort of, <laughs> not a, a material, and you know, brooded over it and thought maybe there's a story to be extracted from, from this or that. So that's how it went for some while, along with the more traditional ones. Do you have any mentors? No personal ones, no. What about influences? Not, not exceptional. I mean, subsequently, I, you know, I'm, I'm a great fan of Beckett, so I, I was very keen to do what I could in my tiny way to uh, make some of Beckett's more obscure texts more present to the audience, to the, to the public, and by doing something graphic with his texts. This is a case, a case in point. It's a tiny, untranslated text of his, which starts at the bottom. First, flat on something hard, the right one or the left, no matter. Next, flat on the right one or the left, the left one or the right. Last, flat on and fish up atop the lot, the head. Graphically uh, illustrated what he's describing there. Yeah. Those little black blocks. Well, what, what, what Beckett is, I've seen this translated by other hands and they don't seem to know what he's doing, but what he's doing is putting one hand there, one hand there, and or maybe doing that one and little by little and laying his head on top of it. Okay. So that's the illustration of it. So why was Beckett in, in, interesting to you? Well, why is he interesting to several million <laughs> readers? Why is he interesting to you, though? Uh, initially, because he was marvellously funny, and then when one got into into the early French, his early French writing, because he was stunningly persuasive. <laughs> Not quite the right word, but but uh, one has particular likings. I liked I liked this author Kemi. He's not very innovative, but he's very imaginative. And I discovered that he was totally unknown in France. In the twenties, he was extremely popular. France's most popular humorist. He was a friend of Charlie Chaplin. He did all sorts of things, but. At his death in 58, he had become unknown, and I thought I met his grandson. He introduced me to some texts I hadn't known, and I thought this would be another thing that kickshaws could do, would be to bring back into popular circulation in his country of birth and where he lived all his life, bring him back to, to be, become the great humorist he had been. It was an uphill task. <laughs> <laughs> it's still going on, and uh, energy is waning. Yeah. Whose work do you admire? Well, the names I've mentioned. You mean about the mean? What I mean book is bookmakers. no bookmaker, bookmakers. I admire any and everyone who experiments or tries to do something new. There's a lot of artist books being made. I mean, the artist books are the thing. And um, artist books generally tend to be a bringing together of a poet and an artist, and the suggestion that they are, their mutual contributions are going to make the book something more than just a simple combination of two talents, which I'm not totally convinced by, so I'm not a keen 
keen one for artists, artist books as such, but uh, I wouldn't denigrate them, but they don't, I think, add much to the, the sense of exploration of new ways. And I'm not very keen on people who use type as a classic form of uh, printing, a medium of printing, but feel that this is making the book something very special because it's done in the old way with, with fine type and the rest. I prefer more extravagant ideas prompting a particular use of time. That's all very arcane. No. Let, let me reach for this one, which is it's the first time I had a complete collection of ten, ten uh, point sizes of a particular type, which is Ramsey's Court. And, and it, I've broken, I shouldn't have done what I did, just open it, but it begins with 48, which is the largest type size available in this. They open alternately. The next one is 36, the next one is 30, and it goes on through the different type sizes to the smallest. It has an epilogue at the end. The last is Corsis, which is tiny. And, uh, thanks, thanks to reading, the, the, each page begins to tell the same story. It's the story of the house we had in the Shaita. But uh, as you read in smaller and smaller type, you get more of the story and there are slight changes made each time so that only when you get to Carl Cease do you actually re read the entire story. And it's another way of exploiting... Well, I just dreamt it up as a way of making a, an odd book. But uh, by using all these, all the possible point sizes of a given typeface. Um, you show off the typeface, but you also lead on to telling a complete story. It's a bit too arcane, I think. But people like it, or they used to like it. This is it still bit, for sale? Is it for sale, yeah. I mean, have you, you've, got, you've got copies. I've got copies, yes. Yeah, okay. It was a small print run, but it's still got copies. Okay. It, it sells well to, to, to printers. I'm sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, this particular page, which is in six point, it took me a day to, to compose, and it took me another day to check it using a, a loop. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are, I mean, there are experiments with type, there are experiments with color, there are experiments with this, there are experiments with that. I, I, I did begin to produce a catalogue based on the different forms of experiment we went in for. Yeah, a catalogue that, that identified all the experiments you made? I, I began to, but I didn't finish it. Okay. That would be a good one, one to day, finish. maybe I will. The trouble is now we are, we are taken up by absorbed, I am absorbed by the need to close all this down. and by the need to close this down, the whole thing. Oh, the, uh, yeah, because we're in, a, in your shop, and it's in Charité-sur-Loire, which is, what, let's say, three hours south of Paris? An hour train ride? Two. Two-hour two, train two, ride. Two to two and a half. Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, that used to be a book town, but, but really there are not too many bookstores left here. And you've also got a pied-à-terre in, uh, in, in Paris. In Paris, yeah. yeah. I'm so, sorry, I'm being very, very 
complicated and narrating mm, this. Uh, I understand you perfectly. Well, what are you trying to do? Do you ask everyone you are confronted with or confront yourself with this, this question? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I confront myself with it. Well, generally, to, to, to make books that keep people interested. Um, they used to be interested in anything new we did. Do you have, did you have a list of subscribers? We used to. But not, not so much? Not now. The subscribers have gone. They have died. They have departed. They have ceased to collect. Collection of this sort of book used to be, used to be a reasonable thing to do for a very small number of people who are assiduous, followed our and bought each new book and that sort of thing, but they've all vanished. It's, hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's visible in this town. There's nobody doing books like we do, but there's nobody interested in them. We don't have a single customer in the town. The, the, the customers we have are tourists, i.e. for three months a year or four months a year. But they're not customers for these books as being as they were in decades past. They buy books as something as a memento to send back to their family or friends and the rest, but not because they are old fans of this sort of book. You know, bibliophiles. Bibliophiles, indeed. So you've you've got better and better at printing these uh, these books. How do you determine what's good? What's a good piece of printing in your own work and in in others' works? I'm not honestly sure what you're, what you're getting at. How do I determine? Well, if you're printing a book, maybe you, you like a page. You're going to keep it because it's good. Other pages you might not like, you might throw them away. What determines... What is good? Your reaction to it. Uh, basically, the books are, most of the books are sequences of one sort or another. So essentially, if you like the idea, each page you will like also. Uh, it won't be particularly, uh, won't move out of the sequence, move out of the series. If it's just not so good for technical reasons, okay, you can you can discard it. And That's what I'm getting at. Though. What are those technical reasons? Doesn't often happen. I mean, usually you're you're happy with what you, it looks if, like. If if the book seems to be working initially, you keep going with it. Uh, some pages may be less effective than others, but um, well, you may rethink the page itself. Um, but it, you, what do you like? If 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 it doesn't register correctly, or if it's what what is it that determines the you know for you the quality of of a page that you would keep or you would discard? This is done by another using another technique of cutouts, as it were, mm -hmm. uh, in plastic, and telling a little children's story by that means. It's, it's, it's done on on the on the press. Some of these pages might have seemed less good than others at the time, and I I don't think I I, I printed this. I, don't, I Sheila cut the 
the waves, those are the waves. But uh, basically it, it seemed to work. I mean, it took some time put, placing the objects and getting the type perfectly fitting onto the objects and there were technical, not problems, but uh, things that you had to pay a lot of attention to. But it went through more or less satisfactorily. You can say that some, some pages are better than others, but that also depended to some extent on the story itself that didn't lend itself to more, more spectacular or more convincing illustration. Okay. There's an example of, of, a, of a text uh, that I had missed a word in, which was a disaster. Yes, it was. I had to rework it. There's a, this is not a, a case of something I didn't like, but something I did wrong. That's the <laughs> yeah. word. So, so I inserted that at great pain. It took me hours and hours to get it just about perfectly right. But it betrays that a, a mistake was made. But why not make mistakes from time to time? I mean, I sort of thought of making a book based on mistakes. One thing leads to another, in a way. Mistakes lead to a book about mistakes. There's a book somewhere there, Arata, My Mistake. <laughs> I built... Shall I show you that? Sure, it, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know, am I abusing it your time? Not at all. No, we're good. It, the attempt is to turn a, turn it into a sort of a, for, a, a form of a presentation of different typefaces and using typefaces as a, as a guide to the sequences of rhyming words that move through it. For this, read that, and, and so on. It'll teach you to track down different types. That's a to total con. I mean, you can't really claim that it's a guide to types, but it's the basis of it. And that comes from the idea of mistakes. For this, read that. How did your life intersect with your work, your art? Is it entirely absorbed by it? Well, it cheered it up when it was working. It cheered it down when it wasn't. <laughs> yes, yes. Now that it's no longer working, really, because there's no longer a public for it, yeah. it cheers it down. It's not the sort of quest answer you want from me, I know, but <laughs> it's the first answer that comes to me. So things are pretty depressing now, are they? They have become miming. My, my main obsession is... is I mean, we are living surrounded by heavy typographic equipment of a certain value that nobody wants. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of books that will no longer ever sell, but we don't want to junk them. And libraries are uh, currently throwing out their collections of this sort of book because they need the space for computers and the rest. Is there a way to describe this sort of book? This the, one? What you've produced. Your, oh, here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is there a technical term a, for it or not really? A, a single word for... No, there honestly isn't because there are many, many different elements that go to make it up. Yeah. It's, it's, they're, I mean, they're handmade books, basically, right? Handmade books. But they're so not... Somewhere on... I, I produced a whole series of, of different sorts of books we make, and one of them I stick by is handmade, brain-made in French. Handmade books, brain-made books. I mean, hand and brain, a combination of the two. 
that's a bit that's a bit vague and mm-hmm. pretentious, I know. But, I mean, we've uh, I've done quite a number of books about Montparnasse just because uh, we live there and it's interested to do some documentation of it and go to the libraries and spend my days in the libraries and <laughs> that's how life intersects with with work and mm-hmm. another way mm-hmm. and that was a good time when one felt one was adding to people's knowledge and uh, interesting them with what one was producing and it was enjoyable to do but that has exhausted itself I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a fact that people are... That Montparnasse used to be a, a quartier that interested foreigners and interested people living in the neighbourhood. This is, this is no longer so. I mean, times have changed enormously. You, you will... Where are you from, you, if I'm not being indiscreet? You're, you're, uh, from Canada. From Canada. Mm. Born and bred. No, I was born there, then we moved to England. Mm-hmm. And I lived there for seven years, and then we moved back to Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. Right. Is, is, is there a life focused on this sort of book in Canada? I mean, is there any activity comparable to... Yeah, there's. I think there's a fairly vibrant chapbook what, sec- sector, or, a, you know, there's a group of people that are... That are making chat books, and I think they're they're quite popular. They have book little book fairs mm-hmm. quite often uh, mm-hmm. around the country. Uh, again, I, 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 I'd be hard pressed to tell you that you know the size of it, but but I think I think it's doing well. I don't know if it's thriving, but that's very specific. I mean, you focus on a particular form of book and do variations on it, whereas we do anything that comes to mind and. Uh, that's why you're finding it difficult to pin me down mm, to anyone. Yes. <laughs> well, I think that describes it, though. It's, it's basically what, whatever's happening in your head as it pertains to making uh, making a, a type of book. Anything, you know, the sky's the limit, I guess, right? Whatever you can think of and imagine and you turn know, into something material. Well, if, if we happen upon something that triggers something yeah. in one's mind or... I mean, it leads to a vast number of false starts. I mean, you start off on thinking this is a good gimmick, so to speak, and it falls on its face, and you don't see how to pull it up and get it moving again, which is the cause cause of a lot of, not misery, but frustration. There's a book behind you. There's another example. I just haven't noticed of... Here, I've okay. done several books like this. This is another print. This is what got printers when they happened by and saw the sort of thing that these non-professionals were doing. This, this is um, rather difficult. I, I sort of worked out how to do it. It's three-color printing on the same co- type composition. There's a bit of green, reddish, ruby, and, and black. And it tells the story of, of somebody, a lapse and collapse of drinking, telling his story as he drinks his way through the bottle <laughs> of brandy to <laughs> empty it at the end. Right, all the red's gone, it's just uh, a yeah. green bottle. And it had to be written to give some justification gra- to the graphics, and the graphics themselves were fairly fairly tricky to do. It was, that was literally my invention. I did three books like that. And it did attract professional printers who 
they realized what I had done, and they were amazed that it could be done with such tiny type. <laughs> and it took a lot of concentration. I did, I'll show you another that I did. That's called lapse and collapse. Yes. Do you have any of those left? No, they all went quickly. Yeah, because it was such an innovation. You yes. can find them on um, Abbey Books, so Abbey books something yeah. like 200 euros a or dollars a piece. <laughs> okay. You, you may be able to. But. So really, again, it's this interesting interplay between ideas and stories and typography and construction of material in an interesting Anything presentation. Goes, if it can be made to go, if it's within our modest means of making it go. And do you do them all on that printing press? Initially, that was our first press. Well, it's our second, but it's remained with us all the way. And what's that one called? That's called a Golding. It's an American press. We happened upon in a Jewish printery, a tiny Jewish printery, when they were deciding to get rid of it. What happened to be walking past? This was about 35 years ago. In Paris? In Paris, yes. And we bought it on the spot, and it has remained a faithful, the most faithful companion of our printing years. And what's this one here and this other one called? That's made by Debani and Peño, who are a great maker of um, typefaces, well known, uh, the tops almost, but they also went in for making presses. And it's a great press, and it's, it, as you can see, it has a lot more power. That, it's amazing what power you can extract from this press, uh, but um, it doesn't have enough to do the really heavy jobs. When we did, or when I did, the 100 million million poems, it requires a huge amount of pressure to cut between... I, tr I, I wanted to do the cutting on that press, not knowing how to do it. I, I mean, it got, got the cutting blades all correctly arranged. I, I'm a total amateur in everything I do, but I got it all correctly arranged and ready to start, and put it in there. I wasn't sure that it was going to work because it's a very lightweight press and it jammed. It jammed for half the day and I had to have a friend come by with tools to unjam it because nothing would unjam it. I took it to a, a friend who is a professional, um, a jobbing printer up the street and he's, he got a much bigger Heidelberg press and he said, yes, I think I can do it. And his press jammed too. And, <laughs> and finally I tracked down from Gallimard, who is the publisher of the original French edition, the chap who had overseen the cutting of the original Cuno's book itself. And he put me onto the company, a professional... Uh, I mean, they do cutting jobs for paper for making boxes and all sorts of strange things. And, and they finally did it. But it was quite a... <laughs> Quite an adventure. That, didn't uh, give up, though. Fun? No, you well, I'd gone all the way to printing it and, and the rest. And they did it well, but, but the chap who did it, I can still remember him, it, it wasn't a mechanical process. He had a, a bigger press than that, like that, but it was a hand-fed press, a treadle, treadle pedal press. Easy to say. And, and he did it page by page and very carefully. Uh, no question of getting 500 sheets and... <laughs> Just one by one, and it took him a day and a half to do it and charged accordingly. <laughs> this, this, I brought this out to show this was a, a naughtier last version of, it's called Rise and Fall, and it's using the same technique as the one behind. This sold very well because it's, 
because it has a sort of a, a mock naughty text that, that justifies the graphics as it, as the graphics rise and fall. <laughs> okay, so a kind of a purplish penis that's getting larger and larger in the background of, or in the foreground really, of a, yes. a black text block yeah. and a red section that's, that's terrific. Yeah. Well, it, was a, it was the fun of thinking of new things to do with this technique you suddenly hit upon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and here he goes down, back down to resting position. <laughs> that's terrific. That was 1984. Hmm. Yes. Those were inventive days. I mean, you come to the point where you, your invention runs out and, mm -hmm. or it doesn't give such good results. Yeah, I, I don't want to end this on a, on a downer, but there's a couple of questions I'd just like to finish off with. One is the best advice you could give someone who wants to, to do what, uh, what you've done or similar to what you've done. They're young and they're excited and interested in printing and the various techniques that can be uh, used both, you know, past and present. I, I have been asked that sort of thing, and, and, and I've re refrained from giving a totally negative response. Yeah, I'd say... You can't give it. I can't give it. You but don't it want would to. be my true response. Don't try it. I would don't try it because you can't make any money at it? That would be one okay. reason, and you do need to re make money, even to acquire the equipment. But, but another is that if, if you're not getting anywhere, your life crumbles. And the, there used to be a supportive community which believed, would, did believe in what you were doing and bought it. And it wasn't necessarily for the money. It was just for the sense that you are taking part in something that's viable. Whereas we don't get somebody coming in here for, for a week long. I mean, this is a dead town in itself, but yeah. I can't blame it for that. But um, you can go on and invent, experiment. I mean, people have said, can we, can we do a stage or something? I said, uh, you, we could learn a lot from you. Well, we taught ourselves, and it was through using the imagination and inventing and that we got the fun. And if we had been told to do this or it being suggested to us to do this, that or the other, you wouldn't have had the satisfaction of doing it yourself. So that's not very, very uh, convincing or positive. But on the other hand, if you don't, if you're not in it for the money, if you're just doing it as a hobby, have you done a hobby? Had a hobby that made no sense to anybody else? <laughs> what I'm doing right I'm, now? Uh, no, no, you you've got an audience. Yeah, you must have. Did you put that question to John? Ra you've you've seen him recently? You mentioned not that. recently. No, it's come some time ago that I saw him. Uh huh. No, I don't know that I did. I mean, he's got he's got a perfect situation. He, he's surrounded by enthusiasts and his part, or surrounded sufficiently surrounded to enable him to believe that this is a great thing to be doing, much to be envied. <laughs> but uh, we we did initially to some small extent, but it it trickled away, and and it's also because it's not traditional. People don't understand it. They they come in. The, the very few people who come in here, having looked intensely at what they see in the windows, 
they come in and you say, can I help you? Can I inform you? And thing. No, no, we just came in and from curiosity. It's a word I hate. And I say, well, I'll let you look around. But uh, what, what you want is people with interest. Curiosity is just blinking at things you don't really care about and are not interested in. Mm. Interest is focus. Yes, I see that. that. That works. I'd like to know more. But there definitely has been interest in what you've done. You've, got, you know, you've placed your books in some of the great libraries around the world. There has been, but, but as I say, it's, it's vanishing and has almost totally vanished. Have you not had that same sort of reaction from other... I have, actually, I have. Uh, it's interesting. I interviewed uh, Glenn Horowitz, who is a, a well-known author-archive dealer. He's from New York. Mm. And uh, he places authors' archives in some mm. of these great libraries around the United States, mm -hmm. mostly. And he, he sees it sort of a tailing off in interest and that there aren't as many, anywhere near as many collectors or connoisseurs or whatever you want to call them of, mm. of the book that, that there used to be. But I've seen that there's, there's definitely still an interest in letterpress printing among the younger generation. Mm. I mean, if you look on YouTube, you'll, you'll find young amateur printers showing you how to treadle a golding, which is nice and gives a sense of an enthusiasm, but they're not committed to the, it's in the sense of making books and going on making books as we felt we could do and should do because it was something we could do and it mm -hmm. gave results and was enthusiastically received. But about 10 years ago I had a good friend, Jed Bega Jarvis of the Ways Goose Press in Australia. I don't know if you, have you, have you ever seen their work? I've heard of them. Ways I don't know if I've seen them. terrific yeah. printers and I did a terrific book about, about their work. And she claimed that our books had been the inspiration for them launching into their own work, which far exceeded us in terms of technical brilliance and all that sort of thing. But right. about, I got a long correspondence with her, but about 10 years ago she was telling me it's all over. Mm. And, and complaining that I was complaining that, you know, things were going on. No, no, don't be stupid, it's all over, stop it. And we broke off because she got, we got fed up with one another. They had a much better reception in Australia because, I mean, because they were about the only people doing that sort of thing, and they stood out and, yeah. and were well received by the academics and that sort of thing. But but as far as going on making more books as they had been making, it's all over. There are no more collectors. Right. Yeah, as I say, there's there's the interest that you have in this in enjoying your life doing this sort of thing and then there's obviously being able to live that's the, what most of us try to do is to figure out how we can enjoy ourselves while making a living doing it and doing it in a community which sees you as a normal uh, welcome member of the community yeah and respects what you're doing so you think that's just disappeared well, you don't think. Well, you, it's been proven to you. It's disappeared here, and in Paris, there's still a Marché de la Poésie, which goes on. I don't know if you've attended it. We were at its second edition, as they call it, back 35 years ago, and we've been faithful up till a few years ago. But, but it changed totally. what is it? 
it, well, it calls itself Moshe in La Poesie, but it brings together all the artisanal, hand-printed um, printers like ourselves, essentially, and poets yeah. and the rest. But nobody's printing as we are now, or almost nobody. They're all doing it on the computer, yeah. as indeed I've begun to do myself, <laughs> <laughs> naturally. Well, let's at least try to... Uh, you don't have a website. No. People say, yes, you have to have a website. Yeah. But uh, you I had that... trouble just finding you and getting information on you when I, when I was Googling you. Yes. So that's part... I mean, that's, that's probably not a solution, uh, but it's something. It's, it's, I know it's a pain in the ass, but nowadays it's so easy to put a, a decent-looking website together for not very much money. You can, you know, you can get templates for free. Yes, I suppose we will. I don't know. I'm. I'm but it's a, it I'm, is an endeavor. I'm 79 now. I really don't think I can launch into a different world. Yeah, yeah. And I honestly, this sort of book, I don't believe that people encountering it on a website yeah. will will find it interesting. You, you can't need appreciate to come it. And yeah. Flick through it. And yeah. Well, how can people get? Can they see any of your material on the internet? Yes. Okay. Where? Uh, the easiest way, I mean, they can see it on bookseller sites. Uh, quite a few booksellers have have books here and there of ours. They come and they go. Is but it, I mean, if you just want to glance at it, I was thinking of open Google, type Kickshaws, and then hit the images, and right. you'll get pages of single photos that they've culled from left, right, and center. Yeah. Is there anywhere they can find out how much they cost and, and buy them from you? Uh, yes, I agree. That it's not very easy. There is something on Wikipedia that somebody wrote, but it's not not good at all, and it certainly doesn't give that sort of information. Right. Uh, there, there, there is um, a site that has just put. We had an exhibition in Paris last year about which they did a rather nice video visit, okay. which you can track down. I can give. No, I can't give it to you here because I don't have the exact site address. You've got an email address. Do you want to give that out or not? To interested parties, yeah. Okay. By that I mean collectors or... Yeah. What I'd like, like to meet is institutes who want to promote this sort of thing, to keep it going, and ultimately to, you know, take on a place like this and make it a, a venue for people you're talking about, uh, young youngsters wanting to launch into it, I mean, to have a residency here, something like that. It's a wild imagination. I can't see it happening. <clears throat> well, hopefully something will come of our conversation, because uh, more people need to know about what you've done and uh, in your life, and it's definitely worthy of praise and attention. So thanks very much Thank for you. talking. Thank you very much for your patience at my hesitations. <laughs> I really am not used to holding forth about about the whys and the wherefores of it. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm uh, grateful for you to spend the time to talk to me. Thanks again. I've been speaking with John Crombie in his shop in Charité-sur-Loire, which is about a two-and-a-half-hour train ride south of Paris. Formerly a book town, but not so many bookstores in it anymore. Could I add another word? It's, it is a shop, 
but it's also a, a printing unit, it's an atelier, it's a typographical atelier, and it's also a bit of a gallery too. It is. More a gallery than anything else, to be honest. No, it's fascinating, and it's filled with all of your beautiful books. 